Are you ready? You don't even know what I'm going to ask you, are you ready for? Are you just in general ready? Okay. Are you ready to hear the Word of God this morning? You are. And you sound certain. Well, if you're so certain, you sound sure, okay, help me with something. What does it mean, all together now at the same time, what does it mean that you're ready to hear the Word of God? Excited. That's all together? <laughs> you know, it reminds me of my high school students. So I teach a theology class, or I used to, and I'd get in there and I'd say, okay, let's start, you know, kids are there, they're eager, they all want to get A's, right? So I ask, I say, hey, guys, is God holy? And all the kids, they think, oh, yeah, yes, they say, God is holy. And then I say, great. What does it mean that he's holy? And how is this going to impact your life today? And they just sort of blink. And they retreat into that time-honored student fail-safe position, unspoken agreement among all of them in the classroom. Just don't say anything long enough and he'll tell us. What does it mean that you're ready? And what does it mean that you're ready to hear the Word of God this morning? Now, I'm going to ask you that question again later in the sermon. But first, please turn in your Bibles to Luke 8, where you will find something the Bible itself calls the parable of the sower. So far be it from me to suggest there'd be a better title since the Bible gives it the parable of the sower. However, if we wanted to give it a title that would more directly get at its core meaning, it's really not about the sower, this parable primarily. It's really about the hearers. So I like to call it the parable of the hearers because that's the focus of Jesus' parable called the parable of the sower. This parable is found in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'll begin reading at Luke chapter 8, verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, and Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, Those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. 
This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. This very famous and perhaps infamous, because really of what I'm about to say, this very famous and infamous parable has created numerous problems for interpreters throughout the centuries, perhaps more than any other parable of Jesus. One commentator notes this. So many nuances have been suggested that sorting them out is akin to sorting hay in a haystack. And we don't have time. Believe me, all I've read on this parable this week was even only a bit of that haystack. We don't have near the time this morning or in a series of morning for the entire haystack. But I do, I do want to remind you first of a key tool of interpretation We've been discussing it throughout our series on the parables, but a key tool of interpretation for interpreting parables. In fact, the perplexing haystack of interpretive nuances that are out there on this parable are out there in large part because so many scholars over the years have disregarded this key tool. Second, I'll try in the time we have this morning to cut to the chase to zero in on what I believe, at least, this parable is trying to tell us, at least primarily. First, what is our key tool for interpreting parables? We've talked about this before. We'll see once if you can remember. I haven't mentioned it for a few weeks. But what's our key tool for deciding whether the shadow of a parable is and is not what it's trying to and what it's not trying to reveal about God and His kingdom. What is that key tool? Does anyone remember? Oh. There's the blink again. And the ears it. won't say anything and he'll just tell us. See, I know. The word starts with con, ends with text. Well, you're laughing, but I, do you know the word? I, you know, I'm going to make you say it. Say it. Context. Praise the Lord. Stand for the benediction. I think you've had. Context is our key tool in interpreting all of Scripture, really, but especially parables. Key tool for interpreting Scripture. And the, uh, and the context we're talking about is Scripture as a whole and the Jewish context of first century Israel, where Jesus are thoroughly, completely in his humanity, Jewish rabbi, lived and taught. And oh, we need to dig and delve 
deeply into what the parables meant to those who first heard it before we have any hope of adapting forward as we must what the parable continues to mean for us today in a different time, culture, and place. You will avoid, my friends, you will avoid sorting through many a haystack if you keep the tool of context handy when interpreting Scripture and especially when interpreting the parables of Jesus because they, by design and definition, use pictures from first century everyday life. Like farming in the present parable this morning. And ironically, deeply ironically, embedded in this very parable this morning is one reason at least why some scholars do not look to cultural context in interpreting parables. And oh, the irony. One reason at least some ignore cultural context or find it not as important as what I'm impressing on you today is they have badly misinterpreted Jesus' use of Isaiah 6. When he says the reason that he speaks in parables is to fulfill that prophecy in Isaiah that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. They badly misinterpreted it. We just heard Jesus tell the twelve that they will understand the secrets of the kingdom, but others will not understand. And some have interpreted this to mean that Jesus somehow wanted and designed to hide his message from common folk by being clever about it and cleverly concealing spiritual truth and perplexing haystack parables. That somehow Jesus' intent in speaking in parables was to confuse and confound simple folk. That each element of a parable was supposed to be some sort of brain teaser or crossword puzzle, a mystery revealed to insiders only. And I have one word A strong word for that interpretation of what Jesus meant by quoting Isaiah 6. That interpretation that suggests Jesus intended to confuse and confound anyone. And my strong word for that this morning, in my strong opinion, is wrong. That's wrong. See, how do I feel so strongly about that. That interpretation cuts against everything we know about Jesus and his heart for the lost. All of Scripture context tells us that interpretation is wrong. Jesus doesn't want people not to understand him. He didn't come to confuse. Why did God become flesh? He came as the clearest, purest, most perfect perfect example of God himself so that people could know him, hear him, look at him, listen to him, wrap their arms around him in the clearest way possible. God in the flesh standing right over there. Look at him. Look at him so you may know me. And speaking of context, the context of a parable, everything anyone knows about parables, all agree. The purpose of parables is to illustrate Jesus' message. They illustrate. They teach. They drive home a point. 
They intend by what they are to clarify. Parables are clarifiers. They use, that's why they use everyday life stories and ideas to help people understand by comparing what's familiar to them with what's not so familiar so they can understand the nuts. Parables never obscure Jesus' message. They never make it more difficult to understand. Parables, by what they are, make it easier to understand. And you ask, or you should ask, I've asked, well, then why does Jesus cite Isaiah 6, verse 9, which seems at first to suggest that Jesus wants his listeners to stumble? Let me try and illustrate the answer to that question. Illustrate why. And, and my illustration, like a parable, is trying to help you understand, Okay? I have a daughter who's very nervous because someone in the choir, we won't name her Lori Verbal, let it leak that she was in the sermon this morning. It's okay, Lori. I have a daughter. Her name's Danny. Hi, Danny. And from time to time, as Danny will tell you, Jill and I try to teach Danny things. Things that if she learns, her life may go well with her in and out of our household in whatever land she has been given. One of Danny's challenges in life is a little girl named Daisy. Daisy is our cat. And from time to time, Jill and I will give Danny the following good teaching. Danny, beloved daughter, Daisy's litter box and food and water are your responsibility. Make sure you take care of those two things every day. She who has ears to hear, let her hear. We try to be biblical as we raise our kids. And following this word, this teaching, sometimes, just sometimes, Daisy's litter box and food and water go, shall we say, unattended. At which point, Jill and I will once again approach our beloved daughter, and we may well say unto her something like, you didn't understand us. Now, if we say that to her, if we say that to her, what do we mean by saying that? Do we mean she literally didn't understand the very clear instruction in English? Make sure you take care of Daisy's litter box, food and water every day. Is that what we mean when we say she didn't understand? People all say, no. Do we mean we don't want her to understand? No. 
Instead, what do we mean when we say, you didn't understand us? Danny, here's your chance. What do we mean when we say, you didn't understand? We mean what? Help her parents. Every parent here goes, yeah, I know. (laughs) What do we mean, parents, when we come to a a child, we ask them to do something, they didn't do it, and we say we didn't understand. What do we mean? They didn't. They didn't obey. They didn't do it is what you mean by that, yes? Ah. And don't worry, sweetheart. Someday, you know, when you grow up and teach, you can use me as uh, an illustration anytime you want. See, that, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus means and what the prophecy in Isaiah means. Though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. It means although the message and instruction and teaching is as clear as crystal, in one word in Isaiah, repent. I don't understand. What is that? It's clear what God is after. Even though it's clear, some will not do it. They don't understand. Not because the parable is too clever to figure out, but almost because the opposite. It's so clear, and they get it so clearly from this amazing, charismatic teacher in Jesus who used stuff so they'd get it. They got it so clearly, they realized, oh my goodness, look at the depth that he's asking of us. It's because it's so clear that people just say, whoa, no. And they reject its, albeit very clear instruction. The not understanding Remember from our early discussions on Shema, the biblical heart is what we normally think of today as our minds. The biblical heart makes decisions. The heart is the seat of intellect. And and so the not understanding of parables is not about the parable being a perplexing haystack or brain teaser or crossword puzzle. The not understanding is about an attitude of heart in the hearer about one's willingness to obey Jesus' teaching, obey the Word of God. We don't understand when we don't have an attitude of obedience. We don't understand when we don't do what is taught, when we don't obey. Which brings us to the core message of the parable of the sower. And incidentally, why the prophecy from Isaiah fits so well here, embedded in this particular parable. The parable teaches us there are four types of hearers of the Word of God. Those like a hardened path hear the Word, but don't believe it. In other words, they literally understand the teaching, but they don't obey, don't believe, trust, put their faith in, don't become, don't do. Those like the rocky ground hear the word and they obey at first with joy even. Man, they hit the ground running. They make real changes in their life. They're eager to obey and, even obey and they even do obey, but it doesn't last. 
There's no follow through. And boy, at the first sign of trouble, they get defensive and they withdraw and they stop obeying. They fall away. Those hearers in thorny soil also hear, but they obey or do only so far as to not rock the boat too much of worldly temptations that they also enjoy. Not that there's anything wrong in Christianity with good things that the world has to offer, but it becomes wrong when those things, rather than God's Word, controls what you do and who you are and what motivates you and moves you. It's called idolatry. So their obedience of God's Word at best shares priority with other things. And finally... The good soil are those who hear the word and fully obey. So help them God, and he does, and he will when we make that commitment to obey. He helps them when they fully commit to obedience, as evidenced by the fruit in their lives that in turn blesses others. A harvest which a farmer knows only too well relies completely on God bringing rain. Only God can ultimately produce fruit, and only in a noble and good heart, which is to say, one with an attitude, a desire, a decision, a persevering heart, in Luke's word, to obey. Speaking of context, this parable also fits perfectly into the cultural context of a very rich and very old rabbinic tradition and method of teaching, reaching even to contemporaries of Jesus like Hillel, an early Jewish rabbi. Jesus' context as a first century Jewish rabbi. And it's a common teaching about four, go figure, four different kinds of disciples. Four types of disciples are often mentioned in early Jewish teaching. And this parable makes Jesus no exception. For example, disciples in early Jewish literature are often compared to four common utensils. A sponge, a funnel, a strainer, or a sieve. And the lesson is, be a sieve, retaining and saving the best. Don't be a funnel, just letting the word pass through. And there's always four types of disciples in all of these Jewish traditional things on discipleship. Interesting in comparison to the four types of soil Jesus uses, isn't it? Throughout early Jewish literature, another example, the four types of disciples are also compared to four types of children. Those who listen to both parents, those who listen to dad but not mom, those who listen to mom but not dad, and those who listen to neither. (laughs) A lot of Jewish humor in that parable. As you might guess, The best children are those who listen to both parents. The worst type of children are those who listen to neither. And then with a little twinkle of humor in the teaching, the second best are those who listen to dad, and the third best, those who listen to mom. (laughs) After all, the old TV show was called Father Knows Best, right? (laughs) Now, before anyone is offended, it, it is indeed... That Jewish sense of humor, I'll bet those rabbis telling that parable of the four types of children relished telling it, I'm sure, 
with a twinkle in their eye, and they made sure to tell it often in the presence of their wives. Just to can't. And then they got that look, right, from her. Here's another example. You get a real taste hear how clever rabbinic teaching can be. Jewish literature says there are four characteristics of a disciple. Again, going way back, four characteristics of a disciple. One, quick to learn and quick to lose, his gain is canceled by his loss. Hmm. Wow. That sounds a lot like The rocky soil in Jesus' parable, doesn't it? The hearer who quickly, immediately, which Matthew uses, Matthew loves the word immediately, immediately, all the time he says in his gospel. Just like the rocky soil in Jesus' parable, isn't it? The hearer who immediately embraces the word, but at first sign of trouble, quickly falls away. Second characteristic, slow to learn and slow to lose, His loss is canceled by his gain. And everyone laughs because there really wasn't much gain to lose to begin with, right? That's a lot like the thorny soil, isn't it? The hearer who struggles to slowly mature among the weeds and then sees his obedience in that slow process of choking, choked out. The third characteristic of a disciple in early Jewish writings is... Quick to learn and slow to lose, this is a good portion. Ah, there's the good soil in Jesus' parable. Hearers need to be quick to learn, eager to learn the word, and slow to lose their commitment to obeying it. And the last one, slow to learn and quick to lose, this is an evil portion. Wow, that sounds just like the path. The hearer's heart is too hard to really receive the word much at all, and so never really obeys. And all of that to say that Jesus' teaching of four types of soil fits exactly within that cultural, contextual conversation we see going on in the literature about discipleship in Jesus' day. And like that tradition, teaches about four types of hearers Four types of disciples when presented with the very clear teaching of the Word of God. And so the core message of the parable of the sower, the parable of the hearers, if I can cut to the chase, can be summed up in this way. Be like the disciple who receives and obeys the Word of God with a good heart. And such a disciple not only hears the words of Jesus, but does them obeys them. That's the primary outline and shadow of this parable. And when you study it on your own, as I hope you do, be careful. Be careful when someone emphasizes the parable being told to tell us about the sower. And note that in Jesus' explanation in Luke, the sower isn't even mentioned. Be careful about someone telling you this parable is about the resurrection of all the people at the end of time because that hundredfold has to be an eschatological. Be careful about that. Jesus doesn't mention it in his explanation. Be careful about making this parable about election 
and predestination. He doesn't even mention it in his explanation. Let the shadow be what it is. Second PS, the Greek verb to hear, akouen, is emphasized in each gospel account of this parable. Mark uses it 13 times. Matthew uses it 15 times. And even though Luke's account is streamlined, as is Luke's custom, Luke uses it nine times, this verb to hear. You say, so what? Well, Jesus probably didn't speak these parables in Greek. He spoke in Hebrew or Aramaic when teaching. Nearly every scholar agrees. All the top ones do. And the Hebrew word for hear, which is what Jesus would have used when he told it, the Hebrew word for hear is not akuain, that's Greek. The Hebrew word for hear, which Jesus would have used when he told it, is guess what Hebrew word? Maybe I heard it whispered, and those of you who haven't thought of it yet, you know this one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord Lord alone. Now everybody, the Hebrew word for hear is what? Shema. Shema. Hmm. And guess what? Guess the alternate English translation of the root of that same word Shema. In the Bible, the Hebrew word Shema is translated to hear, but it's also translated in the Bible as what? Any guesses? To to obey. Hmm. Isn't that fascinating? In one Hebrew word, the core lesson of what man has turned into a perplexing haystack of this parable is summed up in one Hebrew word. Shema! Hear and do. Hear and obey in one word. Fifteen times he said it in one gospel, thirteen in another, nine in another, shema, 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 shema. Hear, obey, hear, obey, hear, obey, hear, obey, hear, obey. Yes, I know, it's hilarious. It really is. And we sit there and go, I wonder what this parable's about. Well, this, that, and the other doctor. It's not enough to simply hear. It's not even enough to receive the word at first with joy. It's not enough. Something churches would do well to remember. We also need to obey. Shema. Hear and do. Hear and obey. And the fruit that God will produce through our obedience, a hundredfold, a shockingly, Incredible amount, by the way. Any biblical farmer would have gasped with delight and in belief that a hundred return fold was coming on his seed. Even as disciples of Jesus, brothers and sisters, our soil can change daily, can't it? Even moment by moment sometimes the circumstances we find ourselves in. 
calling for obedience. Every thought captive. Calling for us to follow through on what we know is true. And our soil can get hard or rocky or thorny. Even as disciples, can't it? And there God is, our great big God and Father, constantly, faithfully, relentlessly, out of love, sowing the seed of his word, even in us already through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the question the parable asks, perhaps especially of disciples of Jesus, given the context of four types of disciples. The question the parables asks of especially those who know Jesus, perhaps, is this. How's your soil? How's your heart? Receptive? To the Word of God, what's your attitude like toward obeying? We hear the Word of God all the time, but do we do it? Or does it bounce off us like seed does off a hard-packed path, really making no difference in how we live at all? Or does God's Word struggle? to really get in there and mature like seeds among the stones have trouble doing? Or do we eagerly receive and put into practice new things that we learn about the Word of God or new in our faith and we love out God's Word at first and, oh, this is so great and this is going to work? Only to be like the rocky soil and quickly lose that passion to obey and to do. Even the simple practice of coming to church on Sunday mornings. And it's really all areas of life where an attitude of heart may threaten or reveal our soil. Are you ready to hear the Word of God Sunday mornings? Maybe we think we are, but then the sermon really isn't that entertaining. Or maybe it's too long. Or too short. Or you know what? The music bugs me. And you know what else? That person sitting over there bugs me. Why didn't they light those candles this morning? And doesn't John know how to spell the word gourd? How many of you noticed? I see. I'm not the only anal one here. That's good. Boy, that message is asking too much of me. All they want is our money. Why don't they do that? And why did... Not to say that suggestions aren't helpful, but what's the spirit in which it's given sometimes? Maybe the question... Maybe the question all of us should ask... Along with those types of questions and feelings, not just in church context, but in the context of everyday life, in whatever relationship we're called to be loving in, husband and wife, children, parents, 
work relationships, any people that you know, friends and enemies, the Bible opens it wide open, so everyone and all of life. Maybe the question to be asking in addition to those questions is this one too. Hmm, how's my soil right now? Instead of worrying about everybody else's. Am I ready to hear and receive and do the Word of God? And am I ready to love God and love others, which is how Jesus sums it up? Are you ready to hear the Word of God this morning? Here's the same question. Are you ready to obey it? Quick to learn and slow to lose? Not just obeying it on Sundays, although Sundays are important and can certainly be a challenge. Not only a decision to accept Jesus into my heart, although that's important too. But are you really ready to be transformed? Are you really ready, as the choir sang, and now I'm going to forget the line, he touched, was he, he touched my eyes and I will never be the same? Are you really ready to never be the same? Or is that threatening to you? Are we really ready to take something in that lasts through thick and thin, is ever-present all the time, and indeed changes us foundationally who we are? Are we ready to have obedience to loving God and loving others as the priority in our lives and have all else take at best second seat and stop controlling our lives? Are we really ready to allow the seed of God to grow and develop roots that deep? Through our obedience, Luke's word, persevering. Are we really ready for that? Well, how's your soil? Are you ready to hear the Word of God? Are you ready to obey it? Are you sure? You know, someone came up to me after the first service and said, uh, you know the song that really captures the message that God put on your heart this morning, Todd? And I said, no, please tell me. And he started to hum this one. I don't know that I know the verse anymore, but I know the chorus. I bet some of you know the chorus. If you know it, please help me and sing along. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know that as many of us, most of us, I'm presuming and assuming in this room, call you Father, call your Son, Lord and Savior. You know, Father, how often it is and that we feel your ski- seed scattered in and around us, whether on Sunday mornings 
whether on Sunday evenings or throughout the week in whatever ministries we involve ourselves eagerly in, you know how often we feel the seed of your word, even experientially through the blessing of the Holy Spirit in community as it works out. You know how often it is that we feel your seed cascading on us from your loving hands to show us how it is you want us to live. You know how often we feel it and receive it and have it there. Oh, Father, would you constantly, constantly do that work of plowing our soil to make it receptive to your word, not just in a way that hears it, but a way that hears it and does it. Ultimately, Father, that the world may know, that more of the world may know about you and who you are and your love and your salvation and your eternal life available only in this amazing teacher that we've looked at this morning, this amazing Son of God who is God himself in the flesh. Help us, Father, to not only hear it, but to do what you'd have us do. So help us, God. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction, for God's good words? I found some, actually, first thing this morning in First Peter, and it made me wonder if I remember someday when I find Peter in the life yet to come, say, hey, Peter, hey, Pete, when you wrote this, did you have in mind that day on the shore of the Sea of Galilee when you listened to Jesus tell the parable of the sower. Did you have that in mind? Here's what Peter says, and use this as an encouragement, please, as you go through your day and your week. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. And in the name of that Word, Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed.